Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And welcome, welcome, everybody. You're back for another episode of Let's Hear It. And once again, we're so glad that you're joining us in Mr. Brown. I just say hello, and I commend you for your effort this week, because uh, once again, <laughs> once again, it's a it's a gold medal edition of Let's Hear It. How are you doing? You know, when I'm, I'm doing well, and thank you for that commendation. It reminds me of my childhood at PS 173 <laughs> in Queens, New York, in which Mrs. Goldschlager, who was a woman of at least 117 years, mm-hmm. and I think she... She topped out at about four feet, six inches. She would say, when the students were getting unruly, she would say, the following students will receive a commendation. (laughs) And the place would fall silent. And and no one ever got a commendation. She She never distributed a single one. So you just gave me a commendation you have now. Exceeded Mrs. Goldschlager by one, and I appreciate. Well, that. I'm happy to do it, and this is more than a participation trophy. This is real. This is real accomplishment that's happening here. So <laughs> set this up. Tell us who we're about to listen to, and then, as usual, we've got to come back and talk about it. I had this a great conversation with Edgar Villanueva, who has his the second edition of his book, Decolonizing Wealth: Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance, was just released in August. It's a really, really good book. And Edgar, he has worked or worked in philanthropy for uh, at least a decade, probably longer. And underst- like Jonah in the belly of the beast, <laughs> he he really writes about the the power in balance and uh, of philanthropy and the communities that it hopes or seeks to serve and and how we have to start thinking about our these relationships in different ways and edgar is um he is a native american queer uh, person and and he brings these uh, he brings all of uh, a really full understanding about what it means to be human what it means to be to live in this country and to live inside this power dynamic in really beautiful ways and caring ways. And the one thing that I will say is that a lot of if you you go on the go on the internet, some people are are have challenges with his his book, but it, it's I I don't because they haven't read it mm. because mm. he really does bring uh, an incredible amount of love to this work, mm. and it was delightful to speak with him. Well, and it's a challenging topic. I love how Edver, Edgar's self description from Twitter: author, activist, angelic troublemaker. And you're going to hear all, all of that as Eric and Edgar talk. So this is Edgar Villanueva on Let's Hear It. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is none other than Edgar Villanueva. Edgar, if you didn't already know, is an author, activist. He's expert on issues of race, wealth, and philanthropy. He's the principal of 
the Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital. And of course, he's the author of the best-selling book, Decolonizing Wealth, whose second edition was just released today, if I'm not mistaken, as we record. Edgar, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book, and thanks very much for talking with us. Thank you, Eric, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, we On the show, we've been talking about you a bit, uh, and I've mused aloud that we'd love to have you on. And, and now I have the chance to have this conversation with you, and I'm really excited. Uh, I don't even know where to begin, but I guess I would just, maybe we'll just start by talking about your, how you ended up in philanthropy. You know, um, like a lot of people in the sector, um, at least folks who started some time ago, I kind of stumbled into the field. It wasn't uh, a space I was familiar with and uh, absolutely didn't have sort of professional ambitions around philanthropy. Um, it was really a time and place 17 years ago when I got started, I was working in the nonprofit sector, doing um, health equity work and uh, finishing up my master's degree at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And I got recruited from a foundation, um, the largest health foundation in the state that had a new president. I was looking to shake some things up over there, wanting to diversify the staff. She was the, the first woman and the first person of color uh, in leadership there and wanted to not only bring in uh, more people of color, but she wanted to bring in a younger person. And so I was 28 uh, when I was hired as a program officer and uh, which, which back then that was very, very uh, skewed, very young. Um, usually at philanthropic conferences, folks would uh, think that I, I worked with the waiters or whatever and would really be shocked when I told them I was a program officer. But that's really how I got my start. And when I, when I was called to, to interview, it was really bizarre because I was thinking at that time that I was going to leave North Carolina and go work, you know, in Atlanta or DC, which is kind of what we did if you were from North Carolina and wanted to get to the big city, but not too far. And uh, I was interviewing with major healthcare systems and the CDC and just large kind of institutions. And uh, the foundation that I went to work at was situated in this really small house. There was only eight people who worked there. And so it was really funny at first because it was hard to understand what they really did and what I would be doing there. But after several conversations, I was kind of uh, convinced that's where I should go. And uh, that's how I got my start. They handed you a massive checkbook also, did they not? You were, you were making big grants yeah. from the get-go. What was that like? You know, it was really interesting. And back then, we actually literally printed checks in our office. <laughs> and uh, I, I had a signature stamp at my desk with the, the president's signature. So I would literally stamp a check, put it in the envelope and mail it to people, <laughs> which sounds like the dark ages. Wow. Um, and I remember holding like one check in my hand being like, wow, I could, I could buy a house with this check. Like this, it was the most money that I, that I had ever seen. So, um, so it's, it's, it really was phenomenal to kind of be a part um, coming from poverty and, and not having wealth in my family to, to all of a sudden be in this place where I was sending massive checks. Um, most of our grants at, at that time at that foundation were probably like 250000 to 500000 um, over a couple of years. So 
you know, it was uh, my total portfolio, I believe was about $25 million. So it was um, quite, a, you know, introduction <laughs> early in my career to a, a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of uh, the, the whiteness that we, we talk about in this work nowadays. What kind of, what does that do to a person having that kind of power? Obviously, you had come from a different place than many of your colleagues, I assume. But what ends up happening to you when you have that kind of power? You know, I think for me, um, I definitely um, felt in, enticed and excited by the power in some ways. You know, um, it's it's nice to have power if you haven't had it to, to all of a sudden be seen and be respected and with all of that acquired privilege that I had working in this institution, I, I did enjoy it. And um, I, I tell the story often. I remember the first holiday season where I received a Christmas card from the governor of the state. And it was like a, a real legitimate card that, that she had signed, not like, you know, uh, as opposed, I guess, to a fake one. I don't know what I'm describing here, but I was like, wow, the governor of North Carolina literally like sent me a Christmas card. I, I must be somebody. And, you know, I, I remember um, helping my family navigate healthcare in the state of North Carolina. And I would just say, tell them where I work and you're, you're going to get the best kind of treatment because we funded all these healthcare clinics across the state. So there were definitely perks that I enjoyed. And the, the, you know, opportunity, um, you know, I got paid well to, to not be worried financially and to um, buy a home and all the things that I, I did for myself were, were absolutely nice. I definitely experienced over time, um, you know, examples of, of folks that I had kind of grown up with in, in the work that I think sort of got intoxicated by that power, um, who did not create systems of accountability. And I felt a draw and a whisper to go in that direction as well and had to, you know, many times through the years, make sure I was um, kind of checking in with myself and then the family of, of folks that I've allowed to hold me accountable to make sure that I wasn't getting uh, too um, into myself with this work. Um, because the, the system and that is in place will put you on a pedestal and, and give you that power and nonprofits will cater to you and, and, you know, in ways that even if you don't ask for it, it's just the way the game is rigged. And it's really, um, I think, quite hard for people with wealth or people in these, these institutions who are gatekeepers to wealth sometimes to keep a, a perspective and a grip on reality. There's a lot of theology or religion in your book. And a lot of parables and, and things like that. And I kept thinking about Jonah being inside the belly of the beast. And then I got to this parable that was not from the Bible, but it was something that sounded really interesting about the serpent and the flute player. Would you mind telling that story? I think it's just so evocative and it reminds me of what it might feel like to work at a foundation. You know, it's, it is a, a story about um, a, a serpent that was plaguing a village and coming in and terrorizing everyone and gobbling up children and everyone was living in fear. And finally there was a, a flute player who decided to do something about it. And so he went to the edge of the village. He started playing his flute and he allowed the serpent to come and gobble him up. But he had prepared um, you know, for this, this moment and had a little knife with him. And from the inside of the belly of that serpent, he began to just cut away 
little pieces and, and eat it. And he just kept doing that until he got to the heart um, of that serpent. And, um, you know, and he, he killed it and cut his way out and returned to the village, um, kind of showing the heart, I believe, um, as a, as a, you know, memoir um, or proof as well that he had conquered the serpent and uh, there was nothing for folks to be afraid of any longer. And that's, that's a story that I share for, for many reasons. I think it speaks to just trauma that we experience sometimes um, as marginalized people who live in fear, um, who don't have power um, or haven't historically had power. We have, we're building lots of power now um, or have been oppressed and, um, you know, and sort of what it takes is that it takes us stepping forward and being willing to speak truth to that power and to kind of go straight to the heart of the matter and um, you know to to change the situation, and that's what it's felt like working inside of philanthropy, and what I'm finding across other types of institutions where there's such a, a dominant way of being in place, or the the status quo that that is serving the powers that be, um, and it it just takes one person who's kind of brave enough to step forward and to go into what might be a dark place to. Uh, address that trauma and to address that beast, whatever that beast may be, to to get to a place of freedom. Well, not to torture the metaphor too much, uh, but I mean, it's really you're talking about philanthropy. It would, I, I don't assume you think that philanthropy actually gobbles up children, but it does a lot. <laughs> it does a, a lot of things, and you you mentioned it in your book that that intentional or not are uh, reinforcing many of the power structures that allowed these foundations to gain their wealth in the first place. Obviously, Anna Giridardis has spoken about that, written about that in quite a lot of detail. But but I think you go at this from a, a slightly different place, um, I, or at least my, my, my reading of this book feels like it is something from a position of uh, compassion. How do we help these institutions, or how, do, how can these institutions be part of healing rather than a part of harm. Can you, can you talk about deciding to write this book, which is, you know, not an easy thing to do, I can't imagine. And obviously you're taking on these institutions that are very powerful. And you'd worked at, I think, three found, at least two foundations by the time you started working on the book, if I, if I understand that correctly, if not three, but really understanding philanthropy, working from inside it, and then coming to write something that could be perceived as a really challenging indictment of philanthropy. I mean, you know, referring to philanthropy as, as a colonizing in, institution, it, those are fighting words. Can, can you take us through your own thinking about how you came to write this, what you felt you wanted to accomplish and how you went about it? Yeah, you know, I, um, I wrote this book in many ways in response to what I felt was a calling from my ancestors and also um, in response to my own desire for healing. I, being indigenous, being who I am uh, with multiple identities around being Southern, being gay, being, um, you know, first uh, time college graduate in my family, um, I experienced uh, lots of situations that were just painful that I have been carrying around. And what I found is that in my conversations with peers through the years that my, my experience was very shared. 
and there were there were many many people working inside of this industry who are great people, uh, people who have been hired and brought in because of their lived experience, because of the perceived connections and relationships that they have uh, with communities, but then expected to really assimilate to a, a different, almost to be a totally different person once you're inside the institution, to, to leave all of that behind and to dress differently, to speak differently, uh, to think in a, a different kind of way. And, you know, with all the talk that we have been doing for so long in this industry about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I just felt like there needed to be a, a, a deeper story told about, well, what is it actually like inside the belly of this beast, right? What are the experiences of people of color, women, and other marginalized groups as we are, you know, putting statements about equity on our website? We need to hold a mirror up and really be honest about how we as a sector um, are not doing the, the best job within our industry. Um, and the talk is cheap. And how do we really get to a, a place of, of true transformation? And so I love this work you know i still work in philanthropy and philanthropy has been has played such a critical role in our society um and, and supporting the work of liberation and supporting the civil rights movement um i'm not on a campaign to take down philanthropy but i believe with the resources that we have this this one trillion dollars in capital and um, knowing the history of how this wealth has been accumulated um, and all of the privilege and, um, and the oppression towards others who are not allowed to, to generate wealth or build wealth, we just have to like own up to all of that. So I just wanted to like rip the bandaid off and like expose all of this and put it on the table and, and not tiptoe around uh, real facts and, and the truth so that we could actually do better as an industry and get to a place of, of real transformation. And, you know, I'll say that I, um, I'm just a person that believes in speaking the truth and love. And, you know, and you mentioned earlier sort of the influence of my faith and all those things growing up. That's, that's kind of the approach. That was sort of how my, I was raised by my mother who like loves me, but, you know, uh, spoke the truth and love and disciplined me when I needed to be disciplined. And, um, and so that's just kind of my orientation. If we actually really love this work, we'll, we'll speak the truth. We'll, we'll want, we will want it to be better. Um, and I had a lot of fear about putting it out there. I, I did kind of do some things that were considered to be kind of taboo in this industry um, in the way that I, uh, stories that I shared and kind of things that I said, we weren't using a lot of language around white supremacy at the time. Um, but I felt like, um, you know, I've got one shot to like, just kind of put it out there and we'll see how the world receives it. And I've been super um, grateful that it happened at a time where I think we as an industry were ready. We wanted to have this conversation and um, the work's been really celebrated and embraced by the sector in a beautiful way. Well, um, we'll be right after this, after the break, we're going to give, we'll come back and we'll talk more about the book, what's in it. And I also would love to hear about some of these responses. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. 
because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Edgar Villanueva, who is the author of Decolonizing Wealth, which comes out today. Not today, today, because we won't come out for another <laughs> couple of weeks. But as we speak, your book is hitting the, hitting the streets today. Can you talk a little bit about how, what the response was? You, the first edition of this book was very candid. You told stories and you did not anonymize it. You, we, we knew who you were talking about. And like I said before the break, I felt like you, like you offered these stories with compassion and care, but at the same time, they were honest and they reveal what the world, it, what inside the world of philanthropy feels like in general and what it felt like to you, which was that there were, there's a lot that needs to be addressed. And maybe you even by, would begin by helping us understand what you mean by colonization in the title and in the book. Yeah, you know, I, as a Native person, think about colonization and, and its impacts a lot. It's something we talk about a lot in our community. And, you know, colonization historically, the 500 is absolutely, uh, you know, about amassing wealth and um, hoarding power and control and discourse assimilation. And as a native person who kind of entered the space of philanthropy, I, I felt those dynamics in play. I felt the forced assimilation and uh, to become aligned with the legacy of a family or an institution um, or even you know, a president that was currently sitting and to kind of not think for myself or to bring my own analysis into um, the situation. And that, that felt like a forced assimilation. I also noticed uh, through the years of philanthropy that we were more obsessed as an industry um, with our wealth more so than we were with our grant making actually, you know? And I think I share a story in the book where we would have an ice cream party every time our endowment hit like the next million or whatever versus uh, never having an ice cream party for giving away more money than we ever gave away, right? Um, when you meet someone at a conference, at a philanthropy conference, you identify yourself or describe yourself or your institution by the size of your endowment versus how much grant making you do, right? Like we know, like Ford is an 11 or $12 billion institution, right? Those are the descriptors that we use, which kind of speaks to our fascination with, with earning more wealth more so than actually giving it away. Um, the minimum payout rule, the 5%, which is supposed to be the minimum, became the ceiling because we're more uh, interested in uh, a return on our endowment than we are in actually giving away more money. So all of these things just felt really upside down to me as a person who got into this industry to move money. And, um, you know, uh, where I saw that all of the incentives or the priorities were really about amassing more and more wealth. And I saw how power was abused and wielded and you know, how, uh, you know, one single person in an institution could have so much influence and domination over like a movement um, by decisions that were made without any type of transparency or like consensus really. So um, these are the ways that I feel like philanthropy and our behavior models colonial dynamics, right? It's about 
hoarding our resources, uh, forcing our ideas and our theories of change uh, on uh, communities without their involvement or their their ability to push back. And if they don't get in, the, in, in line or if they don't assimilate, then we can sort of ice them out of resources. And that's what has historically happened in this sector and um, some of the dynamics that, that, that I call out. Well, you know, when you say talk about endowment size and things like that, here's a dirty secret. When I worked for a foundation, and if you go to a conference, whoever had the, worked at the foundation with the largest endowment had to buy the drinks. I mean, yeah. even, even <laughs> like, oh, man. And you, oh, yeah. you talk about the effect of that, which you refer to as the colonizer virus, which nowadays we, I think, all understand what viruses are and what they do. And, mm-hmm. and you talk about how it, how it um, sits inside our cultures and institutions that affect education and agriculture and food and foreign policy and environmental policy and in the and in the entertainment industry even when you talk about that you say well this book is about finance and philanthropy but to my mind philanthropy funds all that stuff anyway and that mm-hmm. this this way of thinking inside philanthropy pervades culture as well how are you seeing those pieces interrelate right now? Because you're actually consulting with a lot of these industries and institutions. How do you go into those places and help them better understand, A, what the cause is and what the effect is, and then obviously what to do about it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, a major surprise to me since the first book came out in 2018 is how the message really resonated with other sectors. And um, I have done lots of talks and workshops across corporate America, across um, the broader nonprofit sector in, in the entertainment industry, because, you know, what I experience working inside this industry is, is definitely just a, a, a chronic uh, issue. And the, the colonizing virus that, are, you know, those dynamics that are kind of about extraction, dominating, controlling, separating, it is something that is just baked into the, almost the very air that we breathe and the water that we drink, because from the start of this country, almost 250 years ago, you know, it was based on this premise, right? And um, when it comes to money and, you know, who has money and who doesn't, it's all been sort of almost pre-prescribed uh, by very intentional policies that I, I say are infected with this colonizing virus that has privileged one group and oppressed other groups. And so it really becomes so normal to us. Like I, I, I think all the time about everything going on in the world and how even now, present day in this country, we have schools that are, are, are well-funded and schools that are poorly funded. And we just accept that that's just the way it is. I think about how on this very land, we have children in cages separated from their families. Like these acts of colonization are still happening in very violent ways. And they're happening in ways that are more passive that we just kind of say, this is just the way that it is. And um, if we're not attuned to how the colonizing virus is showing up and uh, we don't have an analysis around it, then we just kind of take it for granted and we just give up on like, this is the system and the way it works. And it's absolutely so clear when it comes to philanthropy and venture capital and bank loans and 
municipal bonds and all the places where money and finance or capital is operating, that the colonizer virus is uh, very much at play because you know, the whole system of capitalism is really about extraction and taking away and, and feeding the one person and oppressing everyone else. So um, it's it's why in philanthropy, although we are good people, we, we are the good guys who choose to do this good work and, and work in this space. We still are infected with this colonizer virus. When you look at, you know, uh, how, uh, who's making the decisions and the lack of investment in communities of color, less than 10% of grants going to Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color because we, um, you know, have these, all these ideas that we've kind of set forth around uh, who is worthy of investment, who is a risky investment, who has a track record, who doesn't have a track record, who we esteem to be, um, you know, an expert at certain issues and how much in alignment is community um, able to put themselves with our agenda and so with all of those things in place, which I think are, um, you know, designed out of good intentions, we are creating a, a more of a divide between the haves and the have nots. I don't actually think that many people get up in the morning to go to work, uh, to be a program officer and, and say to themselves, uh, you know, I can't wait to not fund a black led organization today, right? This stuff is just baked into the system. And that's what I'm really trying to point to, that there's not a silver bullet um, solution. But what foundations and what other corporations and companies and organizations can do is like begin to acknowledge and sort of do an assessment and hold the mirror up around like, how are we perpetuating the status quo? How, you know, what does it look like? What does it feel like to be a person of color who works in this institution? Um, what resources do we have and are is a fair amount or even more than fair amount going to people of color? We have to over prioritize, prioritize and privilege those groups who haven't had access before. And what are all the operational ways that, that are maybe getting in the way of making that happen and, and do the work to change that? And it starts by admitting that we have failed and that we have failed communities. And that's where, you know, I think a lot of folks, especially in philanthropy, are, are not willing to admit imperfection. <laughs> but more and more, I think I, I am uh, kind of inspired to see that, that groups are doing that and even corporations are owning up like, hey, we have royally dropped the ball here and we need to repair that. And there is a process that organizations can engage in to try to right those wrongs. Well, you have seven sections of of your book that address this this process of mm -hmm. of making a better institution i guess i would say you're not calling to, to burn the house down you're really calling on folks to improve to look inward and then to look back outward at at our neighbors and communities and and how we can be a part of a solution in partnership instead of coming up with our own ideas about what other people need and do that I, i'm just going to list those those categories so that people really understand what this what this book is and what your approach is. You say that we need to grieve, apologize, listen, relate, represent, invest, and repair. And that to me sounds like a wonderful recipe for building better relationships with my mother, my child, my neighbor. Uh, my my boss, my whomever that that these are these are kind of central tenets of what it's like to be human, and for these institutions to be more human, they need to do they need to invest in each of these steps 
specifically. Is there something? How did how did you come to this? What's why is why why is this so powerful, Edgar? Why is this speaking to me in such a deep way? You know, it's the the seven steps to healing um, in the book are really based on indigenous practice around restorative justice. If folks are familiar with that, it's really you know when you in practices of restorative justice, which come from indigenous wisdom. Um, there, there's been a, there's been a, a, a wrong committed, right? Someone has been harmed or hurt, and restorative justice is not necessarily about uh, punishing the offender, but it's bringing them into a circle, into a conversation, into a process of saying, okay, how can this victim and this perpetrator, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, right now, if the, I think we don't use that language anymore. Um, how can we right this wrong? What needs to happen, right? And it is really no different from a relationship with a family member or a friend. It's like when you make a mistake, you should feel bad about it. You hurt someone, you should grieve that. And then you should really understand why it hurt them and get uh, do the work to repair that relationship. This is also based on practices of truth and reconciliation that have happened in, in many places like Canada and Germany and South Africa that we, we've yet to really have a process in the US to document at a national level the grievances that have occurred on this on this land towards indigenous and, um, and black folks and other communities of color. So it's, it's really based on those principles and then I sort of weave in money because money is such a, a tangible like representation of like a way to like measure if you're actually doing something. Um, and also because colonization and the accumulation of wealth um, is so connected to how we've hurt communities in this country. So it does start with sort of grieving and acknowledging what has happened and, and apologizing. And then as we turn to action, as we turn externally, as you said, it is about using money as a form of reparations to repair what has happened. So it's, um, I, for me, like being native and thinking about trauma and healing all the time, it was just the only solution I could come up with to like fix what's broken, like something is broken and we need to fix it. And it starts by acknowledging that and grieving that. And in this country, that is something we don't like to do and that we don't want to do. That's why critical race theory is under attack right now. We want to erase history and ignore it and sweep it under a carpet. And that really scares me because I think that we're not going to get to a place of racial healing and on the other side of this until we step right into the messiness of our history and begin to acknowledge and document the grievances of people who have been harmed and, you know, and apologize. And we might get to reparations. I hope we get to that, but I hope we at least get to um, the place of apologizing. And this is something that organizations can do, individuals can do. I've seen examples of it happening at all levels of our society. And I really do hope as a nation, we get to this process as well. And we're doing some work to try to advocate for that. Well, I think you you articulate that so beautifully in the book. And having a chance to meet you now, I could see the person who wrote this book because you do write it with care and compassion, even though you are addressing tough truths. And it, I mean, if you work in philanthropy, you really just, just get the book, read it and, and take it in because it will improve your practice. And if you work around philanthropy in nonprofit organizations or in any of the fields that surround it, finance as well, understanding how you can be a part of building something better 
feels to me like an essential component of what we have ahead of us as a society. And I think you've given us this amazing blueprint from it. And it's extraordinary to meet you. And and thank you so much for coming on the show. You too, Eric. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again. This is Edgar Villanueva, the author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. Out today, this is mid-August of 2021. Get the book, uh, follow Edgar and, and his work. And thanks. Thanks again. And we're back. So let's just do a shout out to Edgar's project attached to the book. Um, that's at decolonizingwealth.com. And you can find Edgar on Twitter. It's at Villanueva Edgar. And then Decolonizing Wealth is at Decolonize, no E, D-E-C-O-L-O-N-I-Z, Wealth. Um, You can track the work there. But I love this description of the Decolonizing Wealth Project. We envision a world where racial equity has become a societal norm And new systems and ways of being ensure everyone can live their best lives, thrive in their cultures, and bring about healing from generations of colonial trauma. And and I feel like in that description, Eric, you touched on um, how some of the feedback can be tough for the work. I think there's so much in that description. It just takes us on a journey through the kinds of issues that editor is going to be confronting with this book. Is that how you put it? Or how would you characterize the work? Yeah, no, it, it's a great way to to think about it. What the this notion of of how wealth has become colonized in in this country is like I say it, it can be challenging for for some but it really does we've been having this conversation Kirk for quite some time <laughs> about the about the role of race in in our country, in our systems, certainly in philanthropy and the work that we that that people who really want to do good things are living in still. And I, I think that is the big point that he's been been trying to make. And I got to tell you something. I remember way back when, when Anand Giridardis, his book came out, um, uh, which is called, and it's on my shelf and I'm going to look at it. I can't remember. Oh, um, Winners Take All. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there it is. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, follows along these many same premises. And I was a little cranky about it and uh, some folks, you know, like people have been cranky about it. And the more I think about it, the more I think mm. he's he's kind of right mm. that that philanthropy is in many ways perpetuating the things that it is attempting or it claims to be attempting to solve. And and there's Edgar inside these large foundations, and and he doesn't pull punches. He certainly doesn't pull any punches in the book. He's quite candid about how people who people from communities that are that have been have been um, held back over the years mm-hmm. working inside philanthropy have such a hard time working in that system because it's 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 not working for them so that 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 kind of challenge how do we how do we improve this institution that has in in many ways continues to do the thing that we we want it not to do is a big question and i think that Again, as I said in the opening, I do believe that Edgar goes at this with with love and affection and that he he doesn't want to burn the house down. What he wants to do is to to build it better. And I think that's what I'm so impressed by. Well, let's acknowledge, too, that as this podcast drops, 
Edgar's book, air quotes, just came out as it's described in the interview. It just is right. when? Okay. When did the book come out? When did August. The- <laughs> Middle of August. So that's not bad. No, that's actually, we're doing pretty good. We're actually doing pretty good. It's turnaround no, here completely. on Let's Hear It. So one of the little snippets, because I think we need to get into the deeper part of this for sure, but one of the snippets that just landed for me was the notion of this 28-year-old program officer, you know, sitting in this in this foundation that is physically mailing checks out the door. And, and, and people that have not lived in and around philanthropy may not understand that to give money away, you have to physically have a mechanism. The money has to move somehow. And for many foundations, that has just been, you send a check out. And sometimes those checks, even to this day, are handwritten. And the idea of this 28-year-old program officer, brand new to this entire uh, world, watching these checks go out the door and this person looking at being, I could buy a house for this. Uh, it's really astounding. And and when you receive one of those checks, which can happen too, it's also really, it's one of the oddest things in the world that, that this game-changing, life-changing resource just can get delivered through the mail. And, and I'm curious, Eric, what your, what your take is on that. Because you just, you open the mail and all of a sudden everything changed. Everything changed well, it's in a little, one day. It's like a little, little like Oprah. You get a car, you get a car, you get a check. Right. So for example, Mackenzie Scott, mm-hmm. who is doing sort of the anti-Gates Foundation version of philanthropy in which she is identifying organizations that she likes and then just sending them money. Yeah. There's no huge infrastructure. There's no theory of change. There's no big strategy. There's no nothing. If there is one, it's not on any website. There's when they announce these grants or gifts, you don't even know how much it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And for folks who have received them, some of them say how much they got, and some of them don't. And so that's that's like the ant. <laughs> that that's a different version of that. Yeah. But it's it's kind of like you get a grant, yeah. you get a grant. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure I go for that either, hmm. but it's it's just a fascinating – we're all just trying to figure out how to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the <laughs> – one answer is don't let anybody uh, accumulate a $100 billion. <laughs> 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 that, that might be a good start. I saw Anand Giridardis on this, uh, in a conversation, a roundtable or something like that. He said, I think we uh, should – eliminate all billionaires, like make it impossible to be a billionaire. Mm-hmm. And if we don't like that, we can go. Yeah, right. You can always ch- change the rules again. Change the <laughs> Let's rules. just try it. Let's see what happens. Well, if it doesn't work out, eh, we'll go back. You talk about some of the difficult reception Eckers encountered with the work. And and I think you're at the heart of something, even describing this dynamic, because it's it seems like with this conversation that Edgar's surfacing and some other conversations recently, he describes this notion of an ominous, like, like this is in the, this is baked into the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink this. He describes all of this ominous force in the background, which he's calling, you know, this, this colonizer virus, you know, this colonial mm-hmm. instinct. And it's funny, even when you describe the different modes of philanthropy, what sits in the middle of that is that really money is the strategy. You know, like like fundamentally, it's about money and and where does the money accumulate? How does the money get doled out? And who makes those decisions? And and like any one of these other very difficult and tricky conversations, it seems quite reasonable that people would struggle and wrestle with how to even have that discussion. But for me, what's so welcome in Edgar 
just being willing to put it out there is to say, look, we're, we're not going to find a new way around this if we don't do what we have to do, which is actually just sit in the discomfort of a conversation, even if we may not be getting it quite right. I mean, do you, meaning we don't know where this goes and we don't necessarily know the right, you know, solutions, even to if, if we're identifying really some of these deep, deep issues. What, what's your, do you, do you think I'm saying that correctly or what do you think about that? Yeah. And as it happens, you're teeing up our next show in which we talk about critical race theory. Yes. Because these things emanate from a deep history of subjugating people, taking their land, taking their bodies and shipping them across an ocean and making them work. And that, that the, and at the center of all of that, Mm -hmm. you're right, was money. It was profit. It was, it was using people's labor in their land uh, for your own benefit. And that's, if we don't solve that problem, then we're just going to, what? We'll build a nicer house on the same crappy land. <laughs> and that doesn't seem doesn't seem right. It also doesn't seem good for anybody, mm-hmm. to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. I mean, if you, I, this is not about my self-interest at all. This is about what's right. But it also, you, you can't build a good society that way. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny because- Or repair a society, I think. The, the notion that you build a society is, is even in, in itself a little arrogant. Well, and, th- and think about this world, a world where everyone can live their best lives and thrive in their cultures, where racial equity is a societal norm. Does that sound radical? Or does that sound like, how is it possible we don't feel like we're already there? You know, and, 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 and can we possibly continue on if we don't get there soon? You know, it's it's just interesting. Yeah. No, it's it's radical if you don't believe that that we have a racist history. Yeah. It's radical if you think that everybody has an equal opportunity. Mm. Then that sounds kind of weird and bizarre. But, <laughs> right, right. you know, right. but it, it is. I mean, we. Well, I, I keep saying uh, Edgar is is a hopeful, optimistic, caring, loving person, and that he, I do believe that he wrote this book with love because he really does want to help these institutions become better. And I think anybody who works in a foundation should read the book. Well, that's a that's an easy <laughs> that's an easy to do. Yeah, that's an easy step. Folks out there. Well, and I love that notion you brought up that this comes from a perspective of compassion. You know, and so we've said it before. I think we need to say it again. To a big thank you to Edgar for putting this these ideas out there and then writing yeah. this in a way so we can find our way into it. I mean, it's 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 incredible. It's incredible. And being generous with his time to to talk to me. Yeah, uh, it was it was great to talk to him. He's a great guy. Yeah. Well, Edgar Edgar Villan <laughs> Edgar Villanueva from Decolonizing Wealth, the Decolonizing Wealth Project. Thank you so much for joining us, um, Eric. Anything else before we go? Well, just see you next time, folks. Thanks for listening. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on this show, and that definitely includes yourself. And we'd like to thank John Beltrano, our enthusiastic production assistant. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Our sponsors, the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org. We certainly thank today's guest and, of course, all of you. 
And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. No, 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 no. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Brown. Okay, everybody. Until next time. Let's hear it. Edgar has been working in philanthropy for over a decade <laughs> and has, you know, like, uh, like a j- nice cough, Kirk. Oh, I just tried to mute myself. Sorry. I thought I was muting myself. <laughs>